Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we launch a new series about how people who are blind or visually impaired experience the Golden State. A big deal is how doors sound when they shut. I have a sonic memory, and I I memorize sounds and how things sound when I'm around them. And we'll hear how an investigation we brought you last fall about sexual harassment in yoga has had a major impact. You know, this isn't just about one case. It's not about one teacher. It's about making yoga a safe space. But first, the surprising California story behind the fortune cookie. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're in a tiny alley in San Francisco's Chinatown at a store that's a stop for thousands of tourists every year. So each one who come in, they get a cookie. This is the Golden Gate Fortune Cookie Factory. Owner Kevin Chan demonstrates how each cookie is pulled quickly off a hot rotating press. And bend them. It's by hand. I can hand roll them 10 to 15,000 a day. Fortune cookies appear at the end of every meal at most Chinese restaurants. But do they actually come from China? The California Report's Susie Racho unravels a mystery for the next installment in our Golden State Plate series. It's a chilly morning at another San Francisco tourist attraction, the Japanese Tea Garden in Golden Gate Park. I'm here with one of the gardeners, Stephen Pitsenbarger. He's a bit of a tea garden historian. We are really a gem that's for San Francisco as much as it's for the tourists. He's taking me to the gift shop, where bolted to the top of a display case, I see two small iron molds, black with long, thin handles. They're called kata and are used to make Japanese crackers called senbei. A small sign says that these presses date back to 1914. As you can see, a very simple device, just pressing it flat. A device, Stephen says, a caretaker at the garden adapted to make fortune cookies more than a century ago. His name was Makoto Hagiwara, and he may have served the first fortune cookies in California right here. Each cookie was imprinted with his initials, M.H. The story that I understand is he took a Japanese cookie, uh, senbei, and he got the idea to put a little note in it. You can probably trace the history of fortune cookies back to L.A. and San Francisco. But, you know, fortune cookies as a concept go way back to Japan. That's Jennifer A. Lee. She wrote the Fortune Cookie Chronicles, Adventures in the World of Chinese Food. But her research took her to Japan. 
around the shrine in downtown Kyoto, there is actually a bunch of families that still make quote-unquote fortune cookies in the Japanese tradition. Lee writes about a woodblock print from 1878 of a man grilling what the Japanese call fortune crackers. They look like American fortune cookies on steroids. They're actually bigger and browner. They're made with like miso paste and sesame, so have a much nuttier flavor than the American versions would tend to be yellow and like buttery and vanilla, reflecting American palate. The ones in Japan also have fortunes, but not baked inside. Instead, they're pinched in the fold. Lee says Japanese bakers still make these fortune crackers one by one, much like Makoto Hagiwara did in the 1900s in Golden Gate Park. But making them one by one was time-consuming. And as their popularity grew, the Hagiwaras found they couldn't keep up with demand. They outsourced production to a local confectionery shop called Benkyoto. My name is Gary T. Ono. My grandfather was the founder of Benkyoto. His name was Sueichi Okamura. Gary says his grandfather worked with Hagiwara to adapt a fortune cookie recipe to the American sweet tooth. They came up with a vanilla extract flavor that we know today. I visit Gary's apartment in L.A.'s Little Tokyo. On the living room ceiling is a giant foam fortune cookie with the message Made in Japan sticking out of it. He drags out a heavy suitcase where wrapped in newspaper are several kata. Oh, those were my duffel bags. They're heavier than I imagined and sport the familiar initials MH, the Japanese tea garden's Makoto Hagiwara. All right. You can see where a, a cookie dough would go. Then you squeeze it and you can lock it. Then you put it over the charcoal or the flame and, the, and you flip it. Eventually, Gary says, Benkyoto helped develop a machine to mass-produce the cookies. But how did this American adaptation of a Japanese cracker become so associated with Chinese restaurants? Author Jennifer Aitley says there were a couple of factors. When the Japanese first came to the United States, a lot of them actually ran Chinese restaurants because back in the 1910s, 1920s, Americans were not eating sushi, right? Sushi, raw fish, like no-go. So instead, you had um, Japanese opening Chinese restaurants because that was familiar with like chop suey and chow mein and egg foo young. And in this mix of... Japanese families opening uh, Chinese restaurants, they began serving fortune cookies as a form of dessert. So Japanese bakeries in California, like Benkyoto, manufactured fortune cookies for decades, until 1942, when citizens of Japanese ancestry were forced into internment camps. Now they were taken to racetracks and fairgrounds where the army almost overnight had built assembly centers. Among those were Japanese-American bakers who made fortune cookies. And at the same time, you had a huge rise in popularity of Chinese restaurants during World War II. And as part of that, the Chinese started serving fortune cookies and, in fact, started manufacturing them in mass. So I like to say that fortune cookies, the Japanese invented them, the Chinese popularized them, but the Americans ultimately consumed them. Hi, how are you? Hi. Um, sencha for two. One sencha? Uh-huh. And two and, cups? Yeah, two sure. cups and the um, tea cookies. I'm back at the Japanese tea garden in San Francisco, drinking tea and reading fortunes with my husband, John. 
Mm. Oh, here we go. The stock market may be your ticket to success. <laughs> we'll see about that. We've got a personal connection to fortune cookies, too. We gave them out as wedding favors. And like the ones now served at the Japanese tea garden, they came from Chinatown. For the California Report, I'm Susie Racho. Today we're launching a new series here on the California Report magazine. It's all about how people who are blind or visually impaired experience life in the Golden State. And we're going to hear stories and sounds from all over California. The series comes to us from the podcast, The World According to Sound. Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett are teaming up with the Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired to take us on sonic trips across the state. Together, they're helping us reimagine California in the rich ways blind people experience the Golden State every day. I had six open eye surgeries. I had over 20 laser surgeries, I had, I've, I've had everything under the sun. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're like, okay, now what? A big deal is how doors sound when they shut. I have a sonic memory and I, I memorize sounds and how things sound when I'm around them. When you're blind, you start to recognize how people walk in their cane taps. I would have never believed anyone that I was going to open a restaurant. And I got so excited about the idea of having bees in my life again. You can go and sulk in the corner, or you could treat it as an opportunity to to get out there and learn to do things that you didn't know how to do before. Before we get to the possibilities of experiencing the world in a whole new way, reporter Chris Hoff starts us off at the beginning, at the moment a person loses their sight, and tells us where they might turn for help. Bob Sonnenberg used to sell insurance. One day, he woke up, got in his car, and headed to work. Driving up to Sacramento, and all of a sudden, I couldn't see the freeway signs. He could still see the road and the other cars, but everything was really blurry. He kept driving, hoping his vision would improve, but it didn't. That was the last day I drove. Bob has myopic degeneration. The fuzziness is permanent. The visual acuity, the sharpness, I can't, it's not correctable. Most people aren't born blind, but like Bob, they lose their sight later in life. Bob started meeting lots of other people who had also recently become blind. He started volunteering, then he left his insurance job and eventually started working at the Earl Baum Center in Santa Rosa. It offers all sorts of classes for the blind and visually impaired. In this class, seven men and women are moving in a straight line, tap dancing together in perfect unison. Like the dancers in the class, the instructor, Denise Van Sill, is also blind. And while for most people learning how to dance is visual, Van Sill teaches it in another way, through sound. Echo game, I'll go, you go. 
the shoes make the sound and it's uh, easy for him to catch on to because it's basically playing an instrument with your feet. So you rely tremendously on sound. Student Nancy Turner has been coming to the class for eight years. It's just sort of a creative thing that I like, you know, being creative with different rhythms. <laughs> the center also teaches practical life skills like reading Braille and navigating with a white cane. Counselor Susan Hirschfield runs group classes here. She says losing your vision as an adult is a much different experience than never having it in the first place. You're kind of starting your life all over again. You've probably or may have lost your job, so you have to get job trained. You have to learn mobility training, you know, with the learning how to use a cane. What this class basically does is, is help you change your mindset. Richard Grundy is one of the dozen people sitting in a circle at the group counseling session. He recently had a stroke and lost most of his vision. He says meeting and getting to know the others here has helped him embrace a world without sight. Instead of thinking about recapturing things that you lost, this class helps you develop options for, for developing new skills. Vision loss is, is permanent, and it, you can either go you can go and sulk in the corner, or you or you could treat it as an opportunity to, to get out there and learn to do things that you didn't know how to do yeah. before. The first thing I noticed when I got to the Earl Baum Center was this fountain outside the main office. The sound of it is nothing out of the ordinary, it's just a fountain. But it's the first thing you hear when you get to the campus. For the people here, it's a sonic signpost signifying that you've arrived, you know where you are. It's a thing that someone who has not practiced listening to the world might miss altogether. For the California Report, I'm Chris Hoff in Santa Rosa. That story comes to us from a partnership with the World According to Sound podcast and the Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired in San Francisco, with additional support from California Humanities. And now for an update on a story we've been following about yoga. With your next inhale, place your hands down on the floor. And you're going to yoga is usually something people do to find relaxation or calm. But what about when the yoga studio stops feeling safe because your teacher is sexually harassing you? My colleague here at KQED, Miranda Leitzinger, has been following the issue of sexual harassment and assault in the world of yoga for the last year. And she's here to tell us what's changed since her groundbreaking investigation came out last fall. Just a note of caution to our listeners, this conversation may contain some graphic language. Hey there, Miranda. Hey, Sasha. So when you first talked about this story on our show last September, one of the things you talked about was more accountability from yoga schools, more enforcement and follow through when people complain about being harassed or even worse by a yoga teacher. What has changed since your investigation first came out? 
one thing that has happened is that one of the most prominent branches of yoga, Iyengar, uh, which is known for its focus on alignment and posture, launched an investigation into one of its own teachers, who is an internationally famous teacher, Manuso Manos, based in San Francisco. Uh, in my my original reporting, three women came forward alleging that he groped their breasts during classroom instruction. So after my story came out, this national organization for Iyengar, they decided to launch their own investigation to see if there were other allegations potentially as well out there. And what did they find? Well, what they found was that six women came forward with allegations that Mano sexually assaulted them in class. And those allegations included touching breasts and genitals, inserting his finger into vaginal and anal orifices, uh, slapping a woman on the bottom. Other people came forward as witnesses saying that they saw him sexually assault students. One of the women I spoke to, Cassie Jackson, said he put his foot on her genitals during class while she was in a pose. I'm lying flat. Left leg is extended out to the side. Up walks Manuso and presses his right foot onto the left side of my vagina. And immediately... I looked up at him um, as if to, you know, signal to him, your foot is not in the right place. Um, he was looking back down at me with this, with this very weird look, signaling to me that, you know, he knew what he was doing. I felt immediately like there was a 250-pound weight on my chest. And as one woman told the investigator hired by the national organization, quote, I do not know of any officially recognized genitalia adjustments in yoga. So what consequences have there been for this teacher, Manu Somanos? Well, when allegations first surfaced against him in the late 80s, the founder of Iyengar Yoga, BKS Iyengar, he decided to give Manos a second chance. Now, this time, the Iyengar leadership in India says he can no longer teach under the Iyengar banner across the world. And in March, he resigned from the national organization and I briefly spoke with him outside of his studio the day before he announced his decision to, to quit. Hi, KVD. I would like to ask you a few questions. No, We're doing you. a follow-up story. Uh, yeah. And, uh, so do you have confidence I, I, in the independent Im- investigation launched by INAUS? No? Okay. Um, there are new allegations. by a unanimous committee okay. of females. And I don't know what anybody else wants. Thank you. And then he drove off in his gray Tesla. Now, what he was referring to when he said he was cleared by a unanimous committee of females, that was an earlier investigation done by an ethics committee at the organization. It's not the one that just happened. Now, I also did get comment from his spokesman, who said that Manos denies all the allegations, past and present. He also says he believes the investigation wasn't fair and that the investigator was predisposed to find the allegations true. So does this mean Manuso Manos can no longer teach yoga? No, he can still keep teaching. The only thing that this does is say that he cannot teach under the Iyengar Yoga banner worldwide. But otherwise, um, since there's practically no regulation of yoga in California, in the United States, there's no equivalent to a medical board or a bar association that uh, puts roles or disciplines its members, he can carry on. One of the people I spoke with for my earlier reporting said, all you need in the United States of America to be a yoga teacher is students. And that's still the case. So how have the women who made these allegations against Manos responded to this report? 
on the one hand, they feel vindicated, they feel heard, they say it's monumental, but they also feel there's more work to do and, and frankly, just exhausted by this process. Um, one of the women, uh, Ann West, who actually her complaint led to this fuller investigation, Initially, she hesitated to come forward, to file a police report, to go public with her story. But now she says she feels she found her voice. I want to keep the conversation going. There's still a lot of answers that we need, i.e. how this was allowed to go on for so long. People in senior positions knew there were rumors, there were whispers. We have to root out this culture that allows this to continue on. But some of the survivors I spoke to, they said an email apology just wasn't good enough. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks for having me, Sasha. That's KQED's Miranda Lightsinger, and you can read the whole update to her investigation into sexual assault in the world of yoga at californiareport.org. And now we're going to talk about the struggle many Californians face when it comes to getting a college degree. About 2 million people in our state have a high school diploma, but no higher education. That could have been the case for 23-year-old Montel Floyd, who faced a major decision his senior year of high school to go straight into the workforce and make money or shoot for a degree. KQED's Julia McAvoy tells us about his journey. There are people at Merritt Community College Montel Floyd is going to miss when he graduates. Good morning, Jamila. That's Jamila Saleh, who supervises Montel in his role as club council president. Good morning, Jack. How are you? That's Jack Smith, one of many colleagues he's come to know on his morning shift in the counseling office. Good morning, Margie. Good morning, Mr. Montel. There's Margie Rubio, who works the Welcome Center, who Montel goes to for morning inspiration. So you continue to vibrate high today, all right? Yes, ma'am. All right. Have a good day. One of the first people Montel met when he got here two and a half years ago was Soleil. He just glowed. And then I seen with the right leadership, he could be amazing. And he has been amazing. That's so crazy that she said that because when I came here, I was broken. My soul was broken. I just, uh, growing up, I always just put a face up. I had to put that wall up. I got called Oreo. I got called um, gay. I did have to physically hit someone. I'm not proud of it. I had to go do ninth grade basically all over because I failed the whole ninth grade with going through my abuse in my house. My mother was disabled, so that means mm-hmm. was, when I was at home for that year and six months, right I had to take, really take care of her more, more day to day and mm-hmm. then homework when I can. By the time Montel was entering Center High School in Antelope near Sacramento, he'd signed up for a school class that trained students to be 911 dispatchers. His mom started pressuring him. You need to be in that 911 dis program. You need to go get a job. But Montel wasn't buying it. I always knew I wanted to go to college. Ninth grade, I knew I wanted to go to college. I wanted to be a teacher. He just didn't know how to get there. But here, something fairly unusual happened, as far as Montel's future is concerned. He took a consumer finance class, and it turns out that class is what got him into college. Everything that we could do in class, we did. Mr. Gomes, who taught the course, had every single senior student fill out and send in a college application. He taught us about financial aid. He talked about taxes. He made sure fee waivers were signed by parents and sent to them in. I applied for Sacramento City College as the early childhood education program. And I love Mr. Gomes for that. 
Center High isn't the only school doing what counselors call high-touch work with kids who are the first in their family to think about trying for college. There's a small continuation school in San Jose, for example, which enrolls every senior in college, too. But most large high schools, they just don't have the bandwidth. Vito Chiala is principal of Overfeld High in San Jose. We don't have the staff or the structure to support those meaningful relationships with students over time uh, in a way that's consistent. I mean, if we could double the number of counselors, that would help. Chella says sometimes kids simply don't follow through on applications, and his staff won't know. At home, a parent could help keep their child on task, but it's harder if the parent hasn't ever gone to college either. Jamila Saleh is Montel Floyd's supervisor at Merritt College and herself a first-generation graduate. Saleh says kids need someone with the tools to help them. My mom didn't have those tools. She wasn't equipped with them, and I don't blame her or fault her, but without paving the way, we won't break the cycle. Good morning, how are you? Montel Floyd is about to get his associate's degree from Merritt College. Yes, we do. You fill out this yellow slip. It has taken him four long years, but he's now transferring to Humboldt State to complete that four-year degree. It can be hard and scary. It was very scary to apply for community college at first, but the application was free. It's a small thing, an application fee, but it's the kind of thing that can derail kids like Montel or move them along to the next step. For the California Report... I'm Julia McAvoy. Finally, this week, we want to say a big and heartfelt congratulations to the women who won Gracie Awards for their contributions to our show. The Gracies honor women in radio, television, and online media. April Dembowski's documentary, The Perfect Mom, won for its exploration of the very real struggle some new mothers face, postpartum psychosis. She noticed police helicopters circling over the apartment. She heard them land on the top of the building. You know, there were snipers on the roof, there were spy cans in our bedroom, and everyone was watching me, and a cell phone was, like, giving me weird messages. Lisa waited for the police to come in and take her. But the next morning, she woke up in her own bed. Tara Seiler won for her radio documentary, Do You Really Want to Know? The story of a California park ranger who discovered his biological mother died in the massacre at Jonestown in the late 1970s. These are the first pictures out of Guyana on the incredible orgy of death that took place in the People's Temple Agricultural Mission at Jonestown. That's a lot to lay on a kid. Telling Robert about his biological mother and that she just died in a mass killing at the same time? Her name was Agnes Bishop. And the California Report magazine's Susie Racho was named the best woman producer in local public radio. Susie's worked for the California Report for more than two decades. She's our secret sauce, the one behind the sound design and music for the stories you hear each week. Whether we're broadcasting from a studio or high in the redwoods on a zip line. Cannibals! I'm here with my producer, Susie Racho. We're both taking a deep breath and just having faith as we hear other people scream their way across the trees. Oh my God!
You can listen to all of those award-winning stories if you subscribe to our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Susie Racho is our director. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Rob Spate. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. The California Report's editorial team includes Asala Sanapur, Peter Arcuni, Erica Kelly, David Marks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation. Accepting nominations now for the 2020 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvine.org. College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.